Welcome to the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair, an executive and mental health coach with 15 years of experience coaching people through personal and professional challenges. I'm also a former reporter for the New York Times, where I covered New York City and national news before becoming responsible for a scandal that took down my career, uh, sort of threw the news media into chaos and began my two-decade-long mental health journey. On this podcast, we're going to interview newsmakers, experts, and regular people on topics that have to do with psychology in the workplace, two topics I've spent the last 20 years thinking about, both for personal and professional reasons. Since the workplace plays such a central role in our lives, from where we spend most of our time to the successes of individuals and nations, we'll explore the myths, misconceptions, and truths to help build better leaders and promote fulfillment in this important part of our lives. We're going to take a scientific and evidence-based approach and avoid pop psychology or simplistic views of people in the places they work. We plan to explore everything from mental health in the workplace to stigma about it in the C-suite. The history of leadership and why, if athletics build leaders, why are so many former players terrible coaches? We'll explore diversity and inclusion, workplace norms, startup culture, and more with our guests. Today, we're going to flip the script, and I will be interviewed by my colleague, Grace Cooper, who's a vice president at Goose Creek Consulting, the company where we both work. She's going to interview me about my background and the purpose of the podcast. I would like to hear a bit about your background. Yeah. So I originally, when I was young, I was actually, I mean, the way it all started was I used to write in high school insanely cruel letters to the editor to our local student newspaper. And then one day, the journalism advisor ran into me in the cafeteria at school and she was like, oh, you're Jason Blair. And she threw out a challenge, like it was one of those, if you can't beat him, join him challenges for her. And if you have so much to say, why don't you come up and fix things challenges for me? And that's where I really fell in love with journalism. I learned in those years that journalism has the power to heal people. It has the power to help people. And as corny as it sounds, it has the power to entertain people. And I fell in love with it, I think, in part because I wanted to do better in the world. I quickly joined the University of Maryland student newspaper when I went to college. By my sophomore year, became the editor. I did internships all over at the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. But what I didn't know was operating underneath the surface was a drug and alcohol addiction. And that was a real struggle for me early in my career. And it's something that was really humbling, I think. And then when I was in New York, the September 11 attacks happened. And that was really a life-changing moment for me, both because of the trauma and witnessing what people were going through, thinking about all the things that had to collide in the world for that moment to happen. And at the end of that year after 9-11, I decided, you know what, I, it's time to get sober. And so on January 7th of 2002, 
I walked into a meeting with my boss and I said I needed help. By the end of the day, she had me in outpatient rehab. Now, in outpatient rehab, because I am a knucklehead, the psychiatrist there said to me, hey, you know, sometimes people who stop drinking and are using drugs because they're self-medicating conditions, sometimes they need to be evaluated by a psychiatrist and get some medication. But being the total knucklehead I am, I decided that is crazy. And I actually said to that psychiatrist, God bless his soul, why would I ever put those chemicals from a pharmaceutical company in my body? And his reply to me, which was quite on point, was, okay, so you've been putting drugs in your body from random people that you don't even know, but you're not going to take medication. And I said, no. And that ended up being sort of like terrible mistake that ultimately in my career turned out to be a blessing because I started to, after months, um, develop symptoms of bipolar disorder. And for those of you who don't know what that is, bipolar disorder really involves long bouts of depression followed by intense swings upward, um, manic moods where you're euphoric, energetic, but participate in high-risk behaviors. Another aspect of it was a tremendous amount of anxiety for me, and I ultimately could not function. And I felt, being at the New York Times and being so young and being so successful, that I already had my one chance Mm -hmm. by going to rehab, and that even though my mind wasn't working and I couldn't function, that I wouldn't be given another chance again. So because I couldn't function, I ended up plagiarizing and fabricating a number of stories. A lot of people think that I did it for fame or did it for attention. But the reality is I was just trying to do my job on a daily basis, but just was unable to function. So ultimately, I was a part of a big scandal. Um, That scandal blew up both my career and also you know, created a lot of distrust in the media. So eventually, after about a year, I returned home, I moved in with my parents, and I began my journey um, toward recovery. And, you know, people tend to think that I did this out of some altruistic reason, but it was really selfish reason. I needed to get advice. So I started a support group for people with bipolar and that support group turned into many support groups. And ultimately, led to me entering the world of life coaching. So I became a mental health coach in 2007 and then ultimately um, started Goose Creek, the company that we both work at in 2010, where over the years we've expanded beyond mental health coaching and also have gone into the space of career development, leadership development, and all sorts of things that I think can have a positive impact on the did I cover your question? Yeah, yeah. Um, and do you want to talk about the the one leader that kind of broke Goose Creek out of the consumer work and into the federal space? Yeah. I think like that kind of speaks to the fact that what you went through really paved the way for people to kind of speak up about what's not spoken about at work, which is mental health issues. Yeah. And I I think it's a great, it's a great, that's, I'm glad you asked that question, Grace, because that story is an important story. 
I remember once with the whole team participating in this exercise where the facilitator was asking us to say when the beginning of Goose Creek was. And I, my date was 2010. That was the date I started the company. Other people's dates were the day that they came to the company. But our CFO said, actually, it was in 2002 when Jason got diagnosed with bipolar disorder that the company really started his long journey. And I really, one of the things that I appreciate about my job is the ability that I get every day to come in the office and take the very difficult, painful things that have happened to me and help other people avoid going through them or recover from going through them. So the story I think you're talking about is in 2014, the United States Department of Agriculture had a high potential leader that they thought was having performance problems. And then over time, they realized that she actually was uh, having a mental health crisis. And so they wanted to find a coach who was familiar with the workplace. And I did career development work on a one-on-one basis with people and someone who is uh, familiar with mental health. So they reached out and they brought me in to work with that leader And I think what that did, working with that leader, gave me a wonderful insight into how all of these things were connected. We spend the vast majority of our time at work, and many more people than people recognize uh, struggle with mental health disorders, but everyone has mental health. And so I think it gave me a real opportunity to bring psychology into the workplace and really look at people's personalities, their values, their behaviors, what makes them up from a health perspective and every other perspective to help improve people's lives and help improve organizations as well. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that kind of, um, it reminds me of something you said earlier too, a word you used in, in terms of needing to take the time that you needed for your mental health. And it's that you had to work on yourself and put yourself first, which I feel like a lot of people, and you described it as this as well, see as something that's selfish when in fact it's not selfish, it's it's putting yourself first. And I feel like there's this just giant cultural ideal of, you know, not talking about yourself or your mental health at work and sacrificing for work. But you know, people, people need to put themselves first so that they can be the best versions of themselves for their work. And I, I feel like that kind of aligns with coaching and, and what you're doing now. So and what I, are you doing now? Yeah. So, so actually to your point, which I think is a really great point, I also get the idea that it's not easy to put yourself first. You know, I was forced to do it, right? Like, You know, we talk about like self-awareness and feedback. I got like feedback on the front page of the newspaper I used to work at, on ABC, all over the world. And that was, for me, was a real humbling experience. And I think something changed in me in that moment where I realized like, wow, like you do have to put self-care ahead of all sorts of other things. And I don't know if I, just with my personality would have gotten a lesson if it hadn't been a hammer to my forehead like that. But it all ties into the second part of your question, what am I doing right now? You know, I work as a mental health and executive um, and a leadership coach. 
So what that really means is I work with people on an individual basis on their career challenges, their mental health challenges, um, working with their families, working with others to sort of address some of those concerns that come up as an everyday part of their lives. I also work with uh, leaders, as I mentioned, and executives. And certainly I work on leadership development, but a part of what I do that kind of integrates the rest of it is pay a close attention to the psychological factors that may play a role in what they're struggling with or what they're good at. And that was no more apparent than the pandemic. You know, I think that coaches tend to take the perspective that if there's a mental health issue, they just need to avoid the client and refer them off to a therapist. But if you were not focusing on mental health during the pandemic, you certainly weren't coaching or you certainly weren't coaching well. So that's one spot where all of that really came together and it to a powerful effect for our clients, many of whom were in healthcare and other areas that were uh, very much uh, in the middle of the fight when it came to the pandemic. I also do some other things. I sit on the honorary board of uh, directors of the International Bipolar Foundation, where I do advocacy and other related work. I also um, sit on the board of visitors of McLean Hospital, a psychiatric hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts, um, where I also do similar advocacy work. And then I also manage a company of about, I think there are 15 people and probably 20 to 30 subcontractors. We all collaborate on our sort of core goals, at least in my mind, of being able to help people. And when I say help people, I really mean helping them in scientifically valid ways, helping them in innovative ways, and going beyond sort of the normal ideas of pop psychology or traditional self-help. Yeah. So why did you decide to uh, start a podcast? Yeah, it's funny. I I can't tell whether it's like the best idea I've ever done or the worst idea I've ever done. Actually, in (laughs) fact, in fact, it is not the worst idea. I can confirm it's not the worst idea. I'd say it's one of your better ideas. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that a couple things come to mind. I think that there are podcasts on the workplace in psychology, but I don't think all of them are really focused on science. Some of them are focused on, a lot sort of focused on pop or positive psychology. And one of the real challenges with positive psychology is sort of the lack of self-awareness that comes with just focusing on all of your strengths. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed in my career is that some of the adherence to positive psychology are some of the most difficult people I've ever worked with. And I think part of that reason is because they're lacking some self-awareness. And really, I think, I'm a firm believer, and I think the research bears this out, that everything about getting along and getting ahead in life is really about our social interactions with other people. And it's really about managing our dark side, right? Our dark side is something that we shouldn't necessarily ignore. And in some ways, we should embrace parts of it But in some ways, we should focus on it to make changes to um, improve our lives and the lives of others. And, you know, if you think about it, it's no wonder in our world focused on things like positive psychology and non-scientific approaches to address things. It's it's no wonder that 
some of the worst CEOs are not compassionate. They don't really understand that the whole point of organizations is to get more done through other people. And that the worst organizations also get blindsided by scandals. I think a lot of that comes down to their lack of self-awareness and their understa- lack of understanding that there's a better way. So that's part of the reason why I want to focus in part on, on leaders as well as the regular people. You know, what I'm hoping the podcast will do is sort of fill some of the gaps and to make organizations, help organizations become effective means to make a lot of people's lives much better. So we'll probably tackle issues, really real issues like depression in the workplace, personality, values, unconscious bias, and a host of other problems that probably get in the way of people being uh, fulfilled and organizations really being effective. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think those topics are something that's just so vastly misunderstood and avoided. And it's it's something that people desperately need at the same time. And I definitely think there's a gap in understanding. Uh, I also think that people don't necessarily understand the impact that a leader can have on an entire organization down to the janitor level. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think there are two great examples of that that point, and this one might be apocryphal, but there's this story that's told about uh, John F. Kennedy uh, walking through um, NASA on a visit to NASA, and on his way out, he runs into a janitor, right? And he asks the janitor, you know, what what's your job? What do you do? And the janitor says, well, I put people on the moon. There's something about Uh, the janitor in an organization or anyone in the organization being so engaged with the mission that I firmly believe that comes uh, through leadership. On the other side of the coin, I think you can find organizations, and you can see that right now in some of our current technology companies, where in the drive for business results, and this ultimately, I think at the end of the day, sabotages those companies, In the drive for business results, leaders don't pay attention to some of those really important topics that really connect to the well-being of their employees. And the reason why I say that ultimately sabotage organizations is because one of the things that we know is that the thing that is most connected to organizational effectiveness is employee engagement, the engagement level of the employees. And the thing that's most connected to employee engagement is how followers view their leaders. And I think one of the mistakes people make is thinking that leadership is about ambition, it's about drive, it's about accumulating power, when it's really about bringing followers along. And I think the real way to bring followers along is to really take care of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people would agree that they do not feel taken care of in this day and age, it's a very rare thing to find in leadership um, and in the workplace. And don't get me wrong, I don't mean to pretend that it's easy for leaders to do that job. It can be hard to keep a pulse on things. It can be hard to, to really figure out what's going on underneath the surface. But I think if that is not a part of your value preposition, the well-being of others, you may want to do something else other than be a leader. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, and I, I also think it's um 
I feel like there's there hasn't been a focus on human behavior when that's at like the center of everything that goes on in our everyday lives, both in work and at home. And and to your point about self-awareness, sometimes just understanding how your behavior impacts others and, and understanding the behaviors of the people around you, sometimes that's enough to then just move forward in the best way possible. That makes complete sense to me. I think sometimes I think a part of the the real challenge is that we're not asking ourselves these questions, right? We're watching things sort of pass along and we think at times that this is just the way it's going to be. Like organizations can't both be effective and take care of their employees. Employees can't feel fulfilled and also do their job. And I think a lot of these misconceptions are absolutely wrong. And there are even people, if you can believe this, Grace, who believe that leadership really doesn't matter. But what we know in reality, leadership matters not only to whether organizations are um, effective, but it matters in terms of, well, how entire organizations and entire societies either thrive or fail. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I see it in conversations I have with people when I when I tell them what my work is and what we do. They sort of pause for a few seconds and then uh, and then they they say, "You know, I feel like" and then they, you know, insert issue in their own organization and it, it all leads back to to leadership and I think, you know, people don't spend time really thinking about that and kind of understanding like maybe we all feel kind of disorganized and um, misdirected and unfulfilled for a reason. And the idea that there's something that can be done about it. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And feeling empowered by that. So um, the name, how'd you choose the name? <laughs> That's a good question. So Silver Linings Handbook. So basically it starts with the Silver Lining Playbook, which is a uh, movie. If you haven't seen it, the stars are uh Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence. And it's about basically two mentally ill people who find each other. And if you've ever seen the playbook of a person who um, Bradley Cooper has bipolar and Jennifer Lawrence has borderline personality disorder, not only are those two of my favorite mental health disorders, I love working with people who have those, but <laughs> you know their playbook was quite off and they helped each other bring that uh, that back together again. And I'll never forget this moment. Like I love the movie and I went and saw it with my partner, uh, Bonnie. And I had probably the first manic episode I had had in like four or five years, you know, totally out of control, totally delusional, totally paranoid, filled with energy, but agitation and confusion. And there were two moments that really stuck out to me, that snapped me out of the situation. The first one is her then probably about four-year-old son, Sean, my buddy, jumps in his chair, turns around and looks at me and says, Jason, you are testing my patience. So that was the first moment. Huh. (laughs) And then the second moment is Bonnie had kind of given up on helping And she was standing in the corner of the kitchen and she turned to me and she was like, I feel like we're in that movie. And I said, what movie? And she said, the Silver Linings Playbook. 
and I snapped out of it. So the movie will always have a uh, special, uh, special moment for me because I was able to snap out of it, get help, get back on track. And then I think, you know, the last part, handbook, I really think, you know, one of the things that we all need is guidance. I think that's why, you know, companies create employee handbooks, but often those employee handbooks don't answer the real questions that people need. They're not exactly documents that are candid and open. What to do when your employee is feeling depressed. (laughs) Yes. I feel like that has not been in any employee handbook I've ever seen. Um, So I thought we'd give people a handbook for their workplace, leaders a handbook for their employees. We would give people who have mental health challenges a handbook for working and those who work with people who have mental health uh, challenges a handbook for getting, helping those people thrive and survive and getting the most out of um, the workplace. Uh, You know, for others, it might be a handbook about their profession. But the beauty is we're looking to find those silver linings in some of our challenges and really help guide people to better lives. Yeah, and that that really is, um, I feel like, the piece of it that sometimes is missing is that there there are ways forward. There's always a way forward. There's always a way to, you know, once you're aware of your dark side, so to speak, to use it to your advantage. Yeah, you just have to keep firing until you run out of bullets. I think... (laughs) I think that one of the real realities too, to the point about dark side, is it's not just a matter of combating your dark side, but some of our dark side, and I think people will see this in some of our coming episodes, some of our dark side comes from a really good place. Things Mm -hmm. that we've suppressed our entire life, things that we've run away from. And some of those things are really, you know, not to get too Freudian here, but they're like, the little child that we suppress to get along uh, in life, the little child that yeah, we the inner suppress. Child. And so tapping into your dark side isn't just about suppressing it. It's also about embracing the part that's good. Yeah, living with it and letting it speak its mind, so to speak, and, and then saying to it, all right, I understand you're concerned. I've got us. <laughs> yep, yep. That's a perfect way to put it because ultimately most of our dark qualities – are really coping mechanisms that have just gone off course. Mm-hmm. Also, leave it to little kids to really tell it how it is. Yeah, <laughs> no. counts on them. <laughs> There's something to be said about the wisdom of children. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think the biggest challenges in society, and, and particularly the workplace today, are? Well, I think one of the biggest ones, I think, is a lack of self-awareness, followed by a lack of understanding and appreciation of the needs of others. I also think another challenge is really just understanding what leadership is about, not to get political, but I, I think you can find some recent examples of people who really think that leadership is about accumulating and exerting power. But the reality is leadership is really about coordinating your followers, because ultimately we as human beings would have been eaten by lions, uh, pulled out of the sky by eagles, chased down and killed by cheetahs, if we hadn't been able to find ways 
to form groups, build effective teams. So really what leadership was really about was selecting somebody among our group to help coordinate us so we could survive, thrive, and be effective. And I think that ultimately, a lot of the problems that we're facing today, whether it's about the disparity in CEO pay or the pay of people who are at the, and the pay of people at the bottom of their organizations or something like the opioid crisis or the dissatisfaction of people in Generation Y or even the war in Ukraine tie back to terrible leadership. And I think that's an important challenge that we've got to tackle. Yep. Completely, completely agree. So what makes you think you have something to offer? Well, my best friend would tell you that uh, the, the thing that I have to offer is that I'm an altruistic sociopath. He argues that I'm the most caring person he has ever met in his life while somehow understanding uh, sociopaths. But I, I do... Th- <laughs> I do think that part of what I have to offer is having been on both sides of the fence, being fulfilled and not fulfilled, of leading and not having leaden, of being broken and being put back together, and of really, I think, seeing the full spectrum of the human experience helps me sort of think of those questions that if we get to the right answers from the right people can have a powerful and positive impact on people's lives. That or it's being an altruistic sociopath. Yeah. A little combo of both probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I feel like, you know, when we talk about this, it's really, it really boils down to the helping others piece of it. And I know that that's something that you've been doing since since you were a little child. Is that, isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, I've always, since I was a little kid, cared deeply about um, helping people. When I was like three, four or five, I always wanted to go into professions that involved helping people. As I grew up, I wanted to find ways to help people. But over and over during those times, whether it's I was living in Houston at the time that NASA's Challenger crashed and my dad was working at NASA or, um, you know, other tragedies we've faced. I've realized that leaders have a disproportionate impact on outcomes. And when they fail us, it can have an enormous impact on people. And I never really fancied myself as a leader. If you think about journalism, I fancied myself as somebody who could hold other people accountable. You know, there's this saying about journalism where your job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I think that there's a real value in that. And I think in my career, I've had the opportunity, certainly as a coach, to tell people and to support people who are doing well, and then also being able to pull aside people who are doing real damage to the world. So I think the dual elements of that have really helped me find fulfillment as I've really found my purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've experienced it all, like you said, and I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I think it's just so unique what we have at Goose Creek 
where I can comfortably say to you, I really need a mental health day today. You know, it's, it's not taboo to, to talk about, you know, truly what, what we're struggling with at work. And sometimes, you know, I think not feeling like you can take care of yourself is often more harmful than just taking the small amount of time you might need to do so and feeling accepted for it. So, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, you've, you've gone through your experiences in your life and, and now you're working with a wide variety of clients who are dealing with similar things. So you have, you have those perspectives as well. So, yeah. So to your point, you know, to all of those points and to your point, you know, just taking an example of the mental health day, we ultimately know the research ultimately tells us not only is that better for the employee, it's better for the organization, but I think there's something bigger there, bigger even than what's best for the organization. It's that we have to be human, that ultimately when a person is in front of you suffering or not doing well or having a hard day, your first obligation is not to be their boss. That as a real leader, your job is to take out an umbrella and protect the people who work from you from the rain, whether that has mm -hmm. to do with a customer or it has to do with health. Your real job as a leader is to protect the people who choose you to be their leader. Yeah. Yep. Well said. So what do you think we can look forward to in the first few episodes here? A lot of me talking. No, really. A lot less of me <laughs> talking and a lot more of me asking questions. So I think that some of the things that we'll probably tackle, we're going to tackle surviving and thriving in startup culture and why so many startup leaders have a difficult time transitioning um, into the more mature versions of their companies. We're going to tackle the rate of depression and the realities of working in the legal profession, some of those myths, misconceptions. We're going to look at intergenerational conflict. I mean, today we have people in Generation Y, Generation X, baby boomers, and uh, millennials all working together. Um, and the, there, there's some challenges there, but there are also some awesome opportunities to take advantage of our differences. We're going to probably talk about the history and evolution of leadership. Uh, what's wrong with uh, industrial organizational psychology, coaching, and the leadership profession. So we're going to look inward a bit, but we're going to tackle a bunch of topics that we think um, will be powerful. And we've got some neat guests slated up, and I'm looking forward to those episodes. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I we, you definitely have an endless list of ideas and and um, a great great list of guests coming up. Very exciting. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs>